It is the 27th of May, and welcome to the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, a live weekly roundtable discussion during the growing season for commercial vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest region. We broadcast live via Zoom at 12.30 Eastern Time, 11.30 Central Time, every Wednesday from the first week of May to the first week of September. I'm one of your hosts today, Ben Phillips from Michigan State University Extension. Co-hosting with me today is Katie Kreuzer from the University of Nebraska Extension. Mike Reinke from MSU is our Zoom engineer. Katie, what are we doing today? Hi, everyone. Today's episode is pumpkin planting for the Halloween market. Our first guest today is Nathan Johanning, commercial agriculture extension educator at the University of Illinois Extension. Nathan's recent work focuses on weed management, cover crops, and soil conservation in fruit, vegetable, and grain crops. He is also an active grower raising pumpkins on his family farm. Our second guest is Brad Burgerford, agriculture and horticulture specialist at The Ohio State University. Brad focuses on crop diagnostic and management, season extension techniques, integrated pest management, micro-irrigation management, and direct marketing of a variety of fruit and vegetable crops. And he also um, runs a pumpkin farm of his own. For guests joining us, if you have questions for Nathan or Brad, please use the Q&A box and upvote other people's questions and make sure to upvote your favorite questions. Our guests will tackle these questions in the back half of the show. Okay, folks, I have to fess up. I forgot to push record when we first did this, and we missed a few good questions and some good answers. And uh, I'm going to give you some backfill on what we talked about. Um, But a bunch of stuff actually got asked later again uh, during the Q&A, and and our guests handled them even better the second time. So I'm just going to give you a couple things that I thought would be useful going into the, the real recording here. Uh, Brad shared that planting in southern Illinois and Ohio starts around Memorial Day uh, as seeded pumpkins, and that is to target a harvest date a week before Labor Day. After that, they they seed every two weeks all the way through mid-July. Now, in northern states, mid-July is going to be pretty late for seeded pumpkins. I like to use July 4th as basically the last plant date for anything seeded, and July 11th for things that are transplanted. So there's a little bit of a different growing zone for, from the two guests that we had today. Also, there's going to be some talk about a no-till transplanter, uh, and Nathan Johanning shared uh, some key tips for customizing a transplanter for no-till, and I just want to go over those because uh, we f- didn't get that in the recording. One is that it needs to have some kind of shank or a wavy coulter right at the front to break into that no-till soil. Also, it needs some double disc openers uh, right in front of where the plant drops down, uh, and a flat packing wheel, and also 100 pounds of weight on the back of this for for a single row unit to, to keep the whole thing uh, weighed down. So we're going to pick up uh, from there where the questions will continue on plant spacing, and then right into the live Q&A. But that's just some background information that we, that we didn't get to record. So enjoy the rest of the show. Brad, can you talk about some of the best spacing recommendations that you'd have for planting bush types versus vine types? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, depending on depending on your market, uh, we ship pumpkins for the wholesale market in uh, twenty counts. 
which means there's 20 pumpkins in a bin, 40 counts, 40 pumpkins in a bin, or 60 counts, 60 pumpkins in a bin. And as everybody knows, uh, plant population impacts uh, whether you hit that genetic potential of that of that variety where it's supposed to be. So um, for our jack-o'-lanterns, for our 40 count jack-o'-lanterns, we, we usually shoot for that 12 to 1400 plants per acre. Uh, whether transplanting or direct seeding and the configuration can be many different you know it depends on the grower's equipment so we got some folks that'll just take a uh, uh, a 30 inch corn planter and block out every other row and do 60 60 inches between rows which is tight but then they'll increase their in row spacing uh you know upwards to six seven feet and then some folks will blank out every you know go with a unit leave, skip two, and then go with another unit. So then you're roughly at 90 inches between rows. And then they're looking at more of that 40 uh, or, or four foot in between plants. So as long as it, I think the research, I haven't done the plant population research, but other folks throughout the U.S. have done that. And I think for a 40 count jack, as long as you're uh, in that 12 to 1400 plant population, no matter what the in-row or, or row configuration is, uh, that's going to maximize your, your, your fruit weight, uh, fruit size potential. But one thing we have seen over my 37 years, uh, back when I first started raising pumpkins, we were raising Howden variety, which today <laughs> you can't, even though if you look on the fruit and vegetable market reports, the 40 counts are always listed as Howdens, but they're not Howdens no more. If anybody was to raise a Howden today, it's probably going to melt down before you even plant the seed because it has no disease resistance at all. We have such better varieties over the last 35 years that have, uh, have disease resistance or tolerance to, uh, to especially powdery mildew. Um, but if you're growing that 40 count Howden variety, then uh, if you do too high of a plant population, you can knock your fruit size down from a 20, 20 pound, 18 to 22 pounder down to 12 to 14. Plus with the price of pumpkin seed these days, uh, you want to space plant as much as possible. Uh, you do not want to do like we did in the Howden days where we were almost uh, uh, just, just dibbling it in there real thick and then coming back in blocking it back because seed is so expensive these days. So most of our growers and on my own farm, I'm using a, uh, a John Deere 7000 with finger pickup units. And most folks that are using the 7000 with the finger pickup units probably are aware of this. But in order to adjust the space, you can buy these expensive sprockets. But if you take that finger pickup unit and cut out two of the fingers, leave one, cut out two of the fingers, leave one, you can use your um, your, your uh, gears and the, uh, the sprockets that come with the planter. You don't have to buy that special uh, sprocket. And then you just take, if you're, if you're doing a 12-inch corn spacing, you just times that by three and you're at 36 inches. So that's how most of our growers are using either a Kinsey or a John Deere finger pickup unit. Cut out two fingers, leave one. And that's how you can get your spacing down. And those finger pickup units pretty well singulate the seed pretty good. I have a few farmers that have done a few adjustments here and there to singulate it even better. But on my farm, I just use a regular old corn plant. I have not uh, upgraded at all. And it's, it singulates the seed pretty good. Thanks, Brad. Nathan, would you have anything to add about spacing bush or vine types? Um, for me, uh, some of the, the general rule, and, and it varies when you look in the, in the seed catalog, some, I might be maybe just a little bit tighter spacing than, than you are, Brad. I did a little rough figuring. 
So um, a lot of what I look at, especially when we look at transplanting, is the number of square feet per plant. I shoot for like some of the limited vine, especially um, in pie pumpkin, smaller things go down to as little as like 15 square feet, 15 to 20 square feet per plant, um, uh, which could be like, sometimes I'll run like um, six feet between rows and then like two and a half feet um, uh, between plants. And then usually get, you know, larger jack-o'-lanterns get closer to like around 24 square feet per plant and then go, go up to even 32 square feet on some of the larger jack-o'-lanterns. And some of that with any of this, it all depends on uh, equipment logistics because that those numbers just happen to be what's kind of convenient to rearrange some gears on the transplanter and uh, and work with you know drive rows and other things to not have you know twenty different row widths and other things going on. Um, so it's um, that's kind of my uh, kind of where I've mostly landed for most of mine. A lot of it, I feel like the row the the bigger the the pumpkin the 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 bigger the spacing and almost some ways it almost kind of falls a little bit on the jack-o'-lanterns you know if it's going to be a 20 pound pumpkin you need to have at least 20 or 25 square feet that's not an exact science but certainly um you can space them out more than what i think uh you know growers did you know 10 or 20 years ago for sure and actually spacing can work the opposite too especially when we're like my co-op is growing for this wholesale market you can take a 20 of one that should be a 40 count like bellatrix and if you space it too far out uh you can end up having a bunch of 28 to 32 pound pumpkins which are basically junk too because you can't get 40 you can't get 40 in a bin and so just have, depends on your market if you're just doing direct marketing sales we really don't care about size. Usually in terms of my market, for my drag market sales, uh, the larger the better. But for our wholesale market, we have to be able to get a 40 count level bin. And it has to be level because we do double stack those on the semi. So you can't have, if they are a little bit bigger, we can top off the top ones a little bit. But um, so the spacing can act the other way. A 20 pounder could be a 24 or 26 pounder and then to be too big for your 40 count bin. Mm. All good points to consider for sure. Um, well, we're anticipating the next growing season with pumpkins. So what are some exciting varieties that you all are watching this year? Well, I can, I can address that. And I, I, if you look at your seed catalogs, there are so many varieties today, which is great. Like I said, 38 years ago, 35 years ago, we had Howden and Connecticut Field. Uh, those were about it. But today we have some very good pumpkin genetics out there. We're paying for them because they're, they're pricey. But when you take these genetics that have disease, back when the Howden days, we had a spray a fungicide every five to seven days and couldn't skip a beat with these powdery mildew tolerant resistant varieties. We've just taken most of our spray programs on a regular year from the old days of 10, 12, 14 sprays down to four or five or six, depending on the season. So we're paying, we, we got a savings there in terms of our fungicide programs. But um, for my markets that we're growing for the wholesale market, uh, for some of our uh, early larger size pumpkins, uh, early giant, early king, uh, Cronus, 
uh, Kratos, Ares. I like this Bellatrix. We looked at it when it first came out. It's an Enzozotic variety, which they've never been in the fucking market before. And I really like that Bellatrix. Uh, uh, and some of my growers that have grown it, except that's one of the ones, if you give it too much room, it'll get too big on you. Um, and then gold metal for our jacks uh, for a nice uh, 20, 25 pound white. Uh, a crystal star is a nice white pumpkin. A uh, Blanco is a nice four to six pounder that we're raising for uh, our wholesale markets. And then we have different types of pie pumpkins we're raising. Field trip is the predominant for our wholesale markets. That's a five to seven pounder just for we can hit that 220 count, bin count. Uh, um, that's roughly what we get around 200 pies in a bin. And then if you want to go a little bit bigger with a little less bin count, a Mystic Plus is a nice seven, eight pound with some good powder and mildew tolerance and has a real nice stem on it. And then the specialty market is where it's hot. Uh, at least last year, they had the prices on these specialty pumpkins, and those would be anywhere from your uh, your New England cheddars to your Indian dows, your porcelain dows, one too many. Uh, you can't mention all the specialties, and those are sold as a mixed bin. Um, and then they're sort of sized out, so we'd have like roughly, uh, depending on the on the on the variety, you know, a twenty-eight to of. 40 count uh, specialty bin and those are just usually sold as mixed bins so we won't sell a whole bin of porcelain dows won't sell a whole bin of uh, red warty things but they're sold as mixed bins through our uh, through our wholesale markets stackers are hot too i don't know if y'all know what stackers are but mm -hmm. it's where the, you can actually take these real flat like white uh, flat bore and there's a lot of other flat stackers and the farm markets and the consumers stack them up on their porch and make almost like a pumpkin snowman out of them and so pumpkin stackers uh, the stacking varieties are real hot too nathan do you want to add anything to that um for me uh i mean brad has covered uh covered a lot of them uh just i think um the looking at some of the different varieties i think uh, i won't add too much on the jack-o-lantern side but we've uh, uh the diversity of some of the warties um i know i've loved some of, like warty goblin and mini warts are two different sized warded ones that i've i've really had luck with but then all of all those you mentioned the different colors the, the stackables the shapes and sizes those have been have been really hot and unique and for me, I think that has given me a competitive edge or something different than what they might be able to find um, anywhere else. Um, you can get things even that that mixed bin at the local box store, you know, maybe doesn't have in it um, and give some some something new and um, cases some things that some pumpkins that people look at and they don't want to touch it because it has these bumps on it and then other people just can't get enough of them. So. Um, I think uh, a couple others, I don't think you mentioned, a, one, a white one that I really like is Moonshine. Um, it's, uh, it's a little, probably around, around maybe that 10 pound mark or so, it depends on, on the season, but it, it does hold its white color really well. Uh, Snowball is a nice white uh, pie-sized pumpkin. Um, all the whites have their, have their limitations on some of their color but those are some that do um do really well a newer one that's a little bigger is specter it has a few bumps on it but it, and it has a little bit more of a cream color to it but it's uh closer to probably that 10 to 15 pound range and um and really nice uh nice shape and just a true jack-o-lantern look and uh and shape to it so um but no there's definitely tons of 
tons of varieties out there. We do some trialing. I know um, Brad does as well, looking at different varieties. And uh, the biggest limitation is usually space. I can come up with plenty, probably more pumpkin varieties than I have room and labor to, to harvest and collect data on. But uh, but no, there's tons out there. So the biggest advice is look for something different to add diversity to what you have. Something I've always done on my farm for my pick your own market and I don't know, this goes back to my grandpa's days before there was hybrid field corn. Uh, if anybody knows the term, a composite blend. But the old timers back before there was hybrid field corn would take all of their open pollinated corn, mix it all up in a bucket, and just plant it all together out in the field. I sort of do a composite blend from my pick-your-own patch because consumers coming to the field love to have the variety in the field. So literally, I will take a five-gallon bucket, take 15 different varieties, dump them all in the bucket, mix them up, and just plant everything out in that pick-your-own patch. So there will be warties mixed with jacks, mixed with pies, every, and the people love it. So that might be something our listeners and uh, other folks may want to consider is just doing a composite blend that also helps out with uh, pollination last year our specialty market our specialty pumpkins took a hit we were so hot during fruit set that we got poor fruit set so that's one reason specialty pumpkin prices were up for us down south here by uh, southern ohio and kentucky so we've seen where folks planted a composite blend of specialties there was better fruit set throughout the field um, just because it wasn't one variety that got hit real hard during that uh, pollination time. So we see that today, too. You'll see field corn producers uh, plant 12 rows of one variety, 12 rows of another variety, and that just helps out uh, with cross-pollination during different weather events. I do want to, uh, I mention a lot, 20 counts, 40 counts, 60 counts, and an easy way to determine what kind of size a pumpkin fits in those bins. And it looks funny when my growers are out harvesting, they will actually have on the wagons a beach ball, a basketball, and a volleyball. And that is the size of pumpkin you would put. So a beach ball would go in a 20 count bin, a basketball would go in a 40 count bin, and a volleyball would go in a 60 count bin. So, you know, depending if I got grandkids, so my grandkids are out picking my wholesale pumpkins and I have to have a beach ball, a basketball, and a volleyball right there for them to put the right size pumpkins in the bin. So that's what I'm getting at when I talk 20, 40, and 60 counts. Great. Thanks, guys, for your input on that. Um, one last question for you, um, and and it's pure speculation, but uh, you guys are both – you have your own pumpkin markets, and um, I'm just curious what you guys are thinking um, with this – with the COVID-19 pandemic and what fall may bring to pumpkin markets and you pick stands and things like that. What are you, what are you hearing now? And what do you think about later on? What do you, any ideas or? Well, I can talk from a wholesale and my co-op already has purchase orders uh, cut with the, with their large wholesale markets. Those were cut two months ago. Uh, so in April, the purchase orders are already in place for a Labor Day week delivery. So we our, our co-op pretty well has those already set in stone and the, the big wholesale chains are, uh, are planning already by cutting those purchase orders. Mm -hmm. uh, where I'm concerned about, uh, as of today, I'm not concerned because Ohio just opened up. We're allowed to have 300 people at events and all this stuff. But if there happens to be a spike in this uh, COVID, 
uh, right at Labor Day or at pumpkin time and they shut everybody down, make us all stay home again. That could definitely and I could I think could impact uh, our pick your own pumpkin operations. Uh, but we're in the strawberry harvest right now. So we allow pick your own strawberries going on. So we've uh, come up with uh, guidelines to bring people onto the farm to do the pick your own strawberries. So we're planning on following those same uh, protocols uh, as we enter into the fall pick your own season. Mm-hmm. I would say for for us, I mean, I would, you know, I think that the market will be good. I think people no different than the hanging baskets and and uh, vegetable transplants, flower transplants that have been, you know, had a good market. I think that that market would, you know, continue. I would agree, Brad, is it all depends on uh, how open uh, and people are allowed to uh, to be at that point in time. You know, I was just thinking, to, I thought to myself multiple times, you know, if, if um, April 1st had actually been October 1st, you know, that I don't know, you know, I don't know how things would have would have gone. I think the biggest thing, if you're thinking ahead, I mean, there's so many unknowns is try to look at the current situation we're in, wherever you're at, and think about how you would need to go through the, the steps that would be needed to maintain the safety of all and, and what you do, even if you don't have to have some kind of plan in place, even alternative marketing, is it some things that you could do some form of online marketing or even sales? I know pumpkins, the part of the pumpkin experience is going to pick them out. Um, but just uh, think creatively of any ways you could capture the same uh, distancing and other things needed and still be able to serve. Hopefully we can, you know, maybe have some, some basic guidelines, uh, you know, some extra hand sanitizer and, and, and have everyone um, and still have the pumpkin season go off fairly well. But I know there's even in our area, some, some fall events, you know, fall festivals and things that are, uh, I think are on the fence as to whether they're going to have their fall festivals. I know there's events even in our area of that same scale through the end of August that have been, have already been canceled. So, um, so that's, it, it makes you wonder another month after that, you know, what, what are some of these events going to do? So that's, I think just try to like anything now, think outside the box and make a few contingencies. And at least for the pumpkin season, I feel like if we, if we have anything that we're fortunate about, we've been through how many months of this now and we can actually look ahead. Whereas some of these crops, we were coming right into it and we didn't even know what to, you know, what was going to be the next, um, you know, guidance or, you know, uh, regulations that we would have to, you know, contend with. At least we have some idea of, of what things might be coming and, and how we could maybe play into that and have a little planning, but well, if nothing else, keep our fingers crossed for all reasons that, that by certainly by fall that uh, the markets are, are open and available for. Um, well, Nathan and Brad, thank you guys for joining us today. And we appreciate your time this week. Uh, ben, you want to tell us what's coming up next, next week? Yeah. On tap for next week, uh, we're going to be talking about hoop house nutrient management and the guests that we've invited for that special day are Judd Reed from Cornell university and David Ekout from the Good Acre Food Hub in St. Paul, Minnesota. And you can tune in at the same place, glveg.net slash listen at the same time, 1230 Eastern Time, 1130 Central Time. 
if you have questions you'd like to send ahead, you're welcome to do so at greatlakesvegwg at gmail.com. And this production is supported by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center and Larry's Leaning Pumpkins. Eileen, Eileen, how I love Eileen. Here at Larry's Leaning Pumpkins, we pride ourselves on our patented leaning pumpkins. Each and every fruit is crooked with care and lopsided with love through the elimination of all flying insects from our property. Since 2006, when we let Kids Bop 10 film a music video here and every child was stung by a yellow jacket on their juice break and every one of them was allergic, we've been committed to a safe pumpkin picking environment for our customers. We've got murder hornets covered. At Larry's Leaning Pumpkins, you'll find a limited selection of these highly coveted pumpkins. Why demand perfection when you can have Eileen? Wow, that guy sounds just like me. So uh, we've gotten to the end of the structured part of the program, and now we can do some live Q&A for folks who have submitted questions and for other folks who may have some and would like to. Um, if you haven't submitted a question before, you can go to the Q&A box and type it in there, or you've, if you open the Q&A box, you can see what questions have been asked, and you can upvote them. Uh, you can also add commentary through the chat function, and at the very end of this Q&A period, we'll um, open up the telephones if there are any telephone callers to, to raise their hand by pressing star 9, and then that would indicate that their question hasn't come up and that they'd like to ask it, and we can unmute you. So, um, Brad, Nathan, we do have two questions that were submitted in the chat. Uh, one of them um, is, it has to do with some conversation earlier about transplanting, no-till transplanting, and whether or not you have pictures of that. And I think you had talked about you were going to fetch some. Did I hear that right? Yes, I do. I do have some. Of course, whenever I'm on the spot, I can never seem to actually find just a picture picture for you. Um, but I do have some actually in a, in a PDF that I can, I don't know if it's easy to share a screen. I didn't want to email for fear I was going to, and I may have uh, had a extra, some extra background noise from my email attempting to open, but we can, um, we can share it later. We can share it for, um, for folks to to view on their own time later, I think that'd be perfectly fine if you can get one by tomorrow. Sure. No, I can do that. Great. Um, another question that came through was, what is the main reason growers are deciding to use strip till or no till? And does does the increase in clean pumpkin fruits, if that's the reason they're doing it, does the increase in clean pl pumpkin fruits justify the added cost of the field operations? Uh, well, this is like a three-part question. And also, does it help with Phytophthora? I can I can talk about why uh, our experiences. My farmers that are up on the Lake Erie shore on the sandy soils, no-till is great. Uh, it, it works very well. You get down here to these southern Ohio clay knobs, and it does not work. Um, one is because of Phytophthora. Uh, like Nate mentioned earlier, that cover crop can actually hold that moisture in place. And on a wet season, uh, the field can be just continue to be saturated. So most of my southern clay knob farmers don't have uh, don't don't practice no-till production uh, just because it doesn't work um, with these heavy soils. Uh, but that is the big one. If if you've ever grown for this wholesale, I think if you grow for uh, Kroger's and if you grow for uh, maybe Walmart uh, in the contracts with their growers, it, it's a requirement that the uh, that the crop is grown on a cover crop uh, because semi-loads will get bumped if the ground spot on the bottom of the pumpkin 
uh, not sure of the exact amount, but there's an actual dimension that when they inspect the semi, if they find so many pumpkins that have a, uh, a, a so much of a larger, I, I forget how many inches it is, but if there's a ground spot on that pumpkin uh, and a certain percentage of them through the semi, the whole semi will get bumped and get rejected. So that's why growers that are growing for those large wholesale markets uh, will grow on cover crops um, because they don't can't can't afford the ground spot and getting a semi load rejected. Plus, if you have a wet year, I, I've had this happen many times on my bare ground plantings. The money you spend hand cleaning those pumpkins, oh, can just cost you mm. another couple hundred dollars an acre. Just people standing there and watch if you have a muddy season. So, the cover crops are great and phenomenal for uh, keeping nice, clean fruit coming out of the field. But uh, in terms of us in Ohio, anyway, our whole, a lot of our big our wholesale markets are demanding that uh, the crop has to be grown on cover crop. You know, I would have to agree with uh, you know with a lot of that. And the, the clean pumpkins, I think, by and large, is is probably the the biggest thing. Occasionally, like where the planter goes, you might get a certain you get a few fruit there that you get a little more soil on, but that's um that by and large is huge and yeah the like you mentioned the cost to try and clean them to me especially if it's a muddy year which seems to happen at least you know at least half the time in the fall um the cost you know the the expense the added expense i would say i could even almost argue if there is any is probably i think well more than recovered from that the other thing is just from a logistics from harvest um, you know, I have been literally harvesting pumpkins in the rain in no-till fields and don't even have mud stuck on my boots um, because there's times so like any crop, you know, if there's a market coming up or something, um, it might be a sunny weekend, but you, you know, you know, it's pouring down rain or it's just a drizzly day, kind of like it is here today. And yeah, you need to be out and harvesting and there's nothing more fatiguing than working in the rain and sinking to your ankles in mud picking up muddy pumpkins to start with. So I, I think, you know, the harvest efficiency, you know, um, and, and getting in, in those aspects that all fall into that are another kind of maybe not, not documented benefit that we don't think about until you start doing it and realizing that, hey, you know, it just rained an inch and I'm out in this field picking pumpkins that, you know, they still have a little soil in some spots, but not nearly as bad as they could be. So I think I know I think there there's a lot of benefit. Weed control is another one that extra residue will help out in weed control, and we don't have a ton of tools for weed control to start with. So anything we can do to um, to help that is uh, definitely be beneficial. And I think the reason strip till has been adopted is back in the early days of no-till pumpkins, we were planting right through that cover crop, and we were seeing stand emergence issues with the cover crop plugging up that planting shoot, no matter how good of a no-till planter you had. And my growers and some of the research that's been done throughout the U.S. is showing if you can, on almost all vegetables, if you can plant into that strip tillage area, you're going to get better seed to soil contact. You're not going to get the, uh, the plants not going to be uh, popping the seed out of the ground and getting the cover crop plants not going to be getting causing a, a reduction that seed to soil contact. So we're just getting a better emergence uh, is what my farmers are telling me by going with a, a strip tillage technique. That's great guys. Uh, we had a couple more questions come in just throughout this discussion. Um, one uh, is, do you guys have any comments or experience with naked bear pumpkins? It's a hullless seeded variety. Are any 
anything to share on holoseed varieties in general? I have not, but Jim Jasinski, who I think is on this on this video and uh, is one of our fellow IPM educators here in Ohio, he had a project where he was doing uh, some of those uh, looking at for the uh, baking market. Uh, I guess pumpkin seeds are those are the those are the varieties you use for the uh, for the pumpkin seed market. Uh, and I think his research he did on that preliminary project showed there is potential out there. But then where we're lacking was the uh, the whole processing thing. You can grow them, but you almost have to grow them for somebody that has that type of a processing setup. And I think getting the seeds removed, we needed to do a little bit more post harvest work in order to uh, economically remove the seeds from the pumpkins. But that's the only work that I'm familiar with in Ohio that's been done in that, in that arena. Uh, we actually did a trial last year looking at naked bear and also a couple of other naked seed varieties that are out on the market. And um, uh, so there's some of those are larger fruited types, more closer to, I wanna say like the six to eight pound type um, like there's a like Camillo and HSC 151 and then Naked Bear is a smaller type. There are, at least visually to me, there's a little difference in the seeds. Um, those other, the larger ones have the seed is a little, a little bit more like a, like a dark green and the others seem to be, um, they're, they're all naked seeds, but there's a little different. I think the, the Naked Bear have a little bit smaller seeds, but, um, but what we did find is that even though Naked Bear might be that maybe two to three pound pumpkin, it packs so many seeds in those little pumpkins. If you ever cut one of them open, that I, that the seed yields on the smaller fruited varieties were actually larger. The yields were actually higher per acre, um, and you're dealing with less pumpkin uh, pulp, I guess you would say, and getting more seeds. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I want to say that the you know seed to fruit weight ratio was somewhere around. You had about. The smaller ones like Naked Bear were around maybe six to seven percent seed. Uh, and then the larger ones is closer to two or three percent seed when you wow. figure weight of fruit by, you know, the weight of, of you know, basically uh, dried seed that you had from it. So I think there's a huge market there. I do know and I haven't fortunately been able to get my hands on one. They do actually have uh, some seed extractors that do a pretty efficient job of, of separating those seeds, some of which are even pole type devices that literally you have the pumpkins windrowed, they go through, they split the, uh, basically the pulp out one side and collect the seeds in the other. Um, and there's, there's a lot of interest in that. I think a lot of it's just finding some, some legwork to do the logistics of the upscaling. And then if you're going to roast them yourself, having the facilities needed to, to do all that. But I think the market is huge. The the few that we've done and the seeds that I've just done myself, I mean, I'll share it with people. I mean, everyone loves them. There's very few people. If you have some of those naked seeds that are roasted, I mean, I think they could, um, they would definitely give some of our other snack foods, you know, kind of, especially small snack foods to run for their money. Um, because the, um, they're definitely really high quality. I believe fairly high in protein, if I'm not mistaken, too. I've always thought it'd be pretty neat to have some sort of processing line for smashing pumpkins and extracting their seeds and roasting them behind plexiglass for visitors to see, sort of like a cider press or a Krispy Kreme donut operation. Um, but it is more efficient probably to pull something behind in the field and just smash up windrowed pumpkins and leave the pulp out there and have the seeds collected on the harvester. Um, I definitely see the value of that. I think those are, those machines are out of, out of Europe um, from the, 
the oil market. Um, they're kind of hard to find around here. There's a guy in Michigan who started selling them as a dealer in Southwest Michigan. Um, but yeah, there's, there is some steady interest in this. All right. Um, our, our last question was about transplanting. When transplanting, what is your preferred cell size? And have you ever used L pots or Ellie pots? Not sure how to say that. Instead of loose media and cell trays. And do you aim to transplant at the first leaf? Uh, so for me, uh, I have always used 72 cell trays. Um, I think in some cases you could maybe go down, maybe just uh, maybe go a little bit smaller. But for me, it seems like when the pumpkins get about time to transplant, um, it's really hard to keep them watered if you get a cell size much less than that. And for, for my transplanter, it seems if you went up to a 50 count, um, you have more soil, of course, and it, it seems like the plug gets a little bit bigger, a little harder to get through the transplanter. Sometimes it might get caught in the, in the shoe with the transplanter. So that's 72 cell has been kind of my sweet spot. And I've referred some other people to that. And they've all, I think, been, been pretty happy with that. I haven't tried anything else as far as any of the other, um, say, uh, non-tray um, kind of cell block options or, or anything. I'm not really familiar with the one that that was suggested, but I, I haven't tried that. Um, but um, but certainly anything that would put a, a good plug together uh, would uh, would be sufficient. I usually shoot for in a 72 cell tray somewhere around one to two true leaves. Um, occasionally, whenever they have to hold the plants too long, I've gone a little bit beyond that. But and but that's kind of where I shoot for. Uh, I, I want a plant that has at least has enough of the uh, um, enough of the soil held together that you have a good plug that you can yank them out of the trays with no problem. Um, don't have them pull out of the and that, that plug still holds together. So that that's kind of where uh, where I've where I've been at with those. I also will note that different varieties will grow a little differently in their timing. Usually two. Uh, two weeks or two and a half weeks is about optimal. Three weeks starts to push it. And then when you get beyond that, then they start to get pretty big. But I found that like the main jack-o'-lantern varieties grow really quick. I think two weeks is probably sufficient for them. But things like uh, like your winged gourds and, and even some of the some of those types seem to grow a lot slower and that I'll, it'll take a little longer to get that transplant up to a, a transplanting size. Cause I, sometimes I'll plant them all at once and I'll kind of wish like, well, I wish I had, you know, started these a couple of days ahead and those are the late to kind of even them out. Cause I'm, you know, waiting on some to mature and others are, you know, kind of, I'm trying to hold them back a little bit, but, uh, but no, that's kind of how I've managed transplant. Brad, do you have any other, any other thoughts or ideas from what you guys are doing? No, we're uh, using 50 to 72 cells. Our speedling float bed plants will definitely be ready for the field a lot quicker than our tray pack plants. Um, so you got to keep that in mind, depending on what system you're running. Uh, but yeah, we usually try to shoot for that first true leaf, but you know how the farming and weather goes. <laughs> if we shoot for the first true leaf, it'll probably be second true leaf by the time we actually uh, get into the field. So nope, we'll do about the same as you, except for our, our speedling float bed system. Uh, that definitely will speed up uh, from seeding to transplant about a week. Uh, wow! Feedback. Wow, that's a huge jump. What? What is that? Why do you think that happens? Just by the uh, we, different we, tray type. We, yeah, we see that on every. That's the float bed system. You know, where the tray, the, the styrofoam trays are floating on a bed of water. So I yeah. think it's that. We see that on tomatoes. 
melons, pickles, we always see that transplants uh, growth enhanced on any of the crops and pumpkins follow suit with that speedling system as well. So do you let those drain completely so that those styrofoam flats are flat mm -hmm. on a surface with no, no liquid left? They're floating in water and they get pulled off the beds right when they're heading to the field. So they never have a drying period? Never. And they never wilt. No wilting. No, they're just, and you never wet the foliage. It's just a beautiful, beautiful plant. Interesting. Well, okay, fellas, uh, that clears the docket of all the questions that we had submitted. And it also um, concludes all of our, our, all of our questions that we had for you as well between Katie and I. So uh, for folks who are still on, you can join us next week for some hoop house nutrient management talks um, and questions. And uh, we also have um, a closing slide for you here. Um, and maybe next week we'll ha we might have some uh, certified uh, crop advisor credits available and we might put a slide up right at the end here like that. That may um, be where you can get that information. But um, we're going to close out now then. And uh, I wish you all a, a good week going forward. Thanks again. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Ben. Thanks.